0: Welcome, friends, to The Flower of the Cedar, a novel in episodic podcast form. We are about to start the next chapter. Come, join us. Chapter twenty five The Wilder She wondered what Jan had thought when she woke to Lara's empty bed. Should she have left word with one of the elves in the maiden house? Should she have written a note? But no, Jan would likely have come after her if she had given any indication of where she went, and what message would she leave else Thank you, Lara thought suddenly, miserable. I should have said thank you. Jan, too, now walked the earth, thankless, just as Toron did. Would she only ever endlessly receive and absorb, never respond? It's too late to return. Jan would not let her leave unprotested a second time, and Lara doubted she would manage a slip again once Jan knew what she meant to do. Perhaps Lara would meet elves on the road returning to their land. Perhaps she might send a message that way. But the thought tormented her. Jan would not know in what mood she had left. She might easily imagine Lara left in impatience, ingratitude dull heartedness. She did not mind knowing that Jan would have no notion as to why Lara had gone, but that she would not know how Lara regarded her, and the pouring out of her life in this journey. On the fourth day, Lara had walked through the fading of the colors, and the elves' country lay irrevocably behind her, yet still the restless pain remained. At last, desperate, feeling pointedly ridiculous and then fleetingly terrified, Lara stood still with the spreading fields of spring around her and tried to speak to Jan's god. If he sent Emma poetry in rosebush leaves and spoke to Jan in rivers and moonlight, surely he would not countenance to play errand-runner for a girl who was, even then, taking step after deliberate step toward his enemies. Yet if it meant the chance for soothing Jan's hearts, she would try it. She spoke shortly, in trepidation lest he answer or lash out at her somehow. She asked him, to tell Jan of her gratitude for all the older girl had done for her. Then she paused, feeling foolish, and asked that Toron might know the same. And then she looked around her for some minutes in silence, not sure whether or what else to say. From the fields, the whirring of insects, the trills of bird song and the rustles of animal life alone met her ears. She shook her head and walked on. Jan had opened her eyes the morning after Lara's departure, somehow expecting the empty bed. Yet how the expectation came, she could not have told. Nor, when she descended to mingle with the elves that morning and found that no one had seen Lara go, did she feel any surprise within her, only a great and growing grief. She absented herself from the breaking of their fast, and came out gratefully into the lanes laced with eglantine and bell flowers, walking among the fresh birdsong and risen light, until she was out of sight of the maiden house. Her hearts fell riotous about her as she spoke with the god. Hours passed unmarked. The thought of her parents' home was strong in her, and yet she knew she would not return there. It had been her home when she left it, but it was hers no longer, though its welcome would abide. Any home she had now she would make with her own hands, for she was a woman grown. Would she follow Lara somehow, searching the land surrounding? No, beloved, came the gods' reply. She and I must now play this out alone. She felt the cupping of her face, the deep warmth of his pleasure in her. The time was hers, unbroken and free of claim. She might dwell in the elves' country for so long as it took her hearts to shed their wounding. She might make merry here, until forgetfulness covered the strong, dark face of the man she loved. Make your peace, dear one, said the god to the kneeling woman, but do not forget. How differently the days weighed on her now that she walked in solitude, laden still with desperation, but not with that quality of hope that had marked her when she first left her parents' home. Perhaps she should, after all, have spoken to Jan. She wanted someone beside her, someone who would talk to her, draw her thoughts from their everlasting brooding over the worn track of the god, her hearts, the summer mountain. She wondered now at her privacy in this, Yet, even so desiring for Jan's company, she could not quite fit the picture in her mind. The girl on her knees, breast, lifted all openness in that menacing moonlight. How could such a one mingle with the fleet-footed Lamia, their radiant hearts held in their own hands, How could such a one look on the faces of the folk who had by their cunning defeated her god? She traveled now with no lingering, no climbing of trees, no walking with wide arms and gaze abroad. Her legs had grown adept at their work. She kept to the road, stirring before the rising of the light, and breaking her pace twice only for swift meals before the descent of dusk. She husbanded her stores well. At the fortnight mark, she estimated, she still had enough provender for the same days over again, and yet, to judge by the woodland surrounding she noted the thick clusters of aspens the elf had told her to watch for, and the gradual accumulation of hill land she had come farther in that time than he had predicted. Very likely, only a hands full of days remained to this journey. How much, she thought, had changed since those first days of slow walking and aches when she had set out from her parents' door. The evening approached. She thought she could make out what might be the entrance to a shallow cave set back in the low undulation of hills just at the horizon. Quickly she tightened the straps of her pack against her body and began a steady sprint, breathing deep and long, head down. She came to the place before night had quite fallen and found the shelter much to her liking. She let her pack down and began to unlace it for her bedroll. Not a furlong from where she knelt, she heard a sudden scuffle in the underbrush and what sounded like a low cry, followed by a hollow sound, like a rock striking earth. She froze and listened. No more cries, though she could make out the gradual tread of a large or heavy foot, one with some knowledge of woodcraft, for the noise of its passage was hidden and slow, so as to merge with the benign rustlings of the world readying itself for the dark and Lara thought that she would not have noted it, had it not been for the scuffle and cry. Was it... yes, she thought it sounded closer now. Cautiously, she lifted her bedroll out by degrees, laid it softly down, and began to feel for her short, stabbing knife. With her eyes searching in the dimming light, she at last could make out an unbelievably bulky shape among the trees, Nothing but its outline could be seen, and of that she was at a loss to interpret, for it seemed to have no dryad's head, though she thought she saw limbs at its sides like arms, but were there four of them? Six? Where a head ought to be, it seemed simply to consist of an indistinct lumpy mass. It turned briefly, and the mass narrowed, and she caught what might have been the blurred profile of a face part way down from the bulk above. Then it turned back, and her breath came fearful, for she could see now that it walked in her direction. Was it hunting her? She crouched and gripped the hilts of her knife. Why had she come here? And then it passed within her good range of vision, and the outline filled in. Not a monstrous creature, after all. A dryad. A young man, hefting on his shoulders the insensate body of a girl some winters younger, she thought, than Lara herself. Thus the four or six arms, and the head that was not a head. Yet she did not slacken her knife's grip. She now brought up memory of the scuffle, cry, and thud with great misgiving. Perhaps he did not mean well to the body slung over his shoulders. Perhaps he would not mean well to her when he knew she knelt here. His steps took him at a glancing angle to the overhang. He had come some paces nearer before he caught sight of Lara, her glinting eyes, and the point of her knife. He stopped. She saw in his face the calculation swifter than thought, And then in one motion, he dropped the girl he carried, brought a boot blade to his hand, and rushed her. Terror poured into her like a cataract. She recognized that he wielded his body as a practiced fighter does. He must have seen in hers the uncertain defense. But she had no time for thought. The distance separating them stood between not a moment. He fell on her in awful silence, and she twisted, frantic, away from the wiry hands, their strength, the knife. Its edge found her arm, cutting a gouge meant for her chest, and she cried out and threw an angry blow of her own. He deflected. He was close enough now that she could see the clammy sweat standing in beads on the side of his face. His left fist came up against her ribs. She knew winding. The fiery wound in her arm began to throb. As she bent to find air, he knocked her to the earth, shoved a hard knee against the small of her back, and ground a boot, relentless, at the wrist of her knife hand, until she felt the tendons tearing. The blade fell from her fingers. She sensed, rather than saw, him raise his own weapon. A sheer whistle cleft the sky a thin, airy sound unlikely to have been made by dryad lips. The young man grunted and fell. She rolled away, scrambling for more distance, and stared at the feathered shaft sunk improbably in the living muscle of his shoulder. She could not take it in. Her mind balked. He had begun to attempt to rise when from the darkened trees a tall hooded figure strode, arrow-fitted taut bowstring. Lara's hopes leapt up in her. Alamia I do not miss, said the figure, in a low voice of command. Run, boy, and this shall claim your life blood." The young man stayed where he was, half risen, half fallen. He looked mutely at his captor. "'Lie with your face to the earth and your hands behind you,' said the woman. You may turn on your side to keep the arrow free.' He did as she commanded, and she knelt beside him with one hand on the shaft of the arrow as the other worked in a satchel at her waist. He understood. "'Move, and I twist the shaft in you,' and kept still. "'Soon she had bound his hands, hobbled his feet, and blindfolded him. "'When she had done this, she gave a high call like a bird, "'and from the surrounding forest Lara could hear distant, answering calls. "'The woman left the young man where he lay "'and moved to the unknown fallen girl, "'feeling at her neck and temple, finding her breath.' noting the head wound that had sent her into deep unconsciousness. Soon, satisfied that the girl would survive, she came at last to Lara. "'Who are you?' Lara said, looking up into the woman's face as her fingers examined Lara's wounds. "'May,' said the woman. She began a rudimentary binding to stop the blood from flowing out the deep gash where it welled slowly, sickly down." Lara shut her teeth hard on the pain. Her side ached where he had struck her, and she found her breath yet came shallowly. Lara started to ask, "'Are you Elamia?' when up from her neck a curious, unpleasant, dizzy warmth blossomed, and she found her eyes would not focus, nor her tongue nor lips move for the words she wanted. She turned her head, dully, confused, a conviction seized her that she was falling from a great height, and then she sagged against the earth and knew no more. Lara woke unwilling. She tried to turn in her mind, to turn in the darkness behind her shut eyes and seek out unconsciousness again. For the nearer she drew to waking, the more she felt in it the pain that waited for her. Yet she rose into it as involuntarily as a body billowing up from deep water to the surface, breaking into the light. She opened her eyes. She lay on a thin pallet, covered beneath and above with animal skin of thick, soft fur. On her exposed face the air felt chill. She turned her ankles against the coverings, then her left wrist finding the end of herself once more. Her side and shoulder throbbed, but when she breathed now she could do so fully. Someone had splinted her hand and it lay quiet over the covers, rising and falling with her breath. For some time she lay content to drowse, half-aware, haunted by the pain of the attack, but knowing it was ebbing from her and would soon have her in its grip no more, she drifted inwardly. The springs of the mahoganies came to her, that dark cavern with its distant violet lights and the contemplation palpable about her. She saw Jan's face and moved her hand as though to reach out. Where am I? she asked herself. Why did I leave without making any farewell? Three sharp raps sounded from somewhere to her right. Lara turned her head and she saw the lines of light marking a door's lintel and posts as it opened from without. Daylight speared through, and her thought broke away, Jan's face receding. The young woman who entered was not May. She stood nearly a foot shorter in height, and where May had been built of long features and stark, powerful limbs, this young woman had a softer, darker face— Colored as it were very like Lara's own, with shadowy eyes and the merest suggestion of a mouth. She carried in her arms a bundle of cloths for wound dressing, and over her left shoulder she had slung a worn kit bag. Had Lara fallen among the lamia at last? And was this their healer? You've woken, the young woman said, looking pleased been waiting for hours. She approached the bed, lifting a light stand with one hand deftly beneath its top and setting it at the bedside. She dropped the cloths on it, then unslung her bag and flipped it open, taking out a short blade and several corked jars, tiny stout bits of pottery with, no doubt, salves within. There'll be no festering, she said cheerily. Turn. Lara obligingly rolled to her side and offered the injured arm. The young woman began unwrapping its bindings, cleaning and anointing the wound afresh, and choosing from among the cloth bundle new wrappings. What are you called? she asked. Lara. I am Enna," said the young woman. How did you come here? I walked from the elves' country. Do you know where you are? The young woman asked, pausing momentarily in her work and giving Lara an assessing glance. No, said Lara, but I am looking for the Lamia. Enna gave a brief smile. You have found us, she said. Lara breathed deeply in out. Why did you come? Enna's blade expertly severed the end of a tail of cloth. She wrapped and tucked it, then slipped a capable arm beneath Lara's shoulders and supported her into a sitting position. I was told, said Lara, that the Lamia can bring their hearts to life without giving them to the god. Enna looked at her patient in silence for a while, considering... She returned her salves to the bag, folded the remaining cloths, and drew a chair up to the bedside, facing Lara. Is that what you heard? She said, simply. Were you told how? Gutting, Lara said. She bit the word off, unafraid. An arrow with all other targets fallen away speeds the swifter to its one home remaining. Again the woman looked at her in silence. Finally she offered the palm of her hand to grasp. Welcome to our wilder, she said. You may dwell among us as long as you wish to stay. Perhaps here you will find what you seek. Perhaps not. You will be ready to rise once you've had some food in you. Let me send some, and you shall see how we live. The Flower of the Cedar is written, produced, and published by me, Kay Avraham. This content is made possible by the support of my patrons on Patreon, We make monthly pledges they can increase, decrease, or cancel at any time. If you are enjoying listening, please consider supporting my work on Patreon. Even a dollar a month makes a great difference to a struggling author. For those of you wishing to support this work in non-monetary fashion, you can tell a friend about the podcast or leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help ratings rise so that other people can find it. Thank you so much.